this is Michael Cox, and uh, by myself today with uh, a friend uh, that I have been introduced to through the Rob Bell Show by the name of Rabbi Sharon Browse. And we're going to be speaking with her today concerning her mission, her ministry, and what she believes that God has called her to do. And uh, so I, I want to take, before I let you hear from her, I'd like to read something that I copied off of her website, ECAR. Did I say that right? Okay, yes, all right. Um, and this was part of the mission statement, uh, and I really did like this. Um, uh, ICAR is a whole is a community, a Kuhila uh, Kedosha. Kuhila Kedosha. All right, a sacred collection of people working to awaken the spirit and transform the world. We are looking to bring meaning and purpose into our lives through serious and authentic engagement with Judaism, and we believe in the ability of a passionate, dedicated group of people to change the world. And uh, that sounds very much like the same mission that I have in my life. Um, but sometimes in the Christian circles that I run in, uh, uh, some people don't want to be a part of that. They seem to be separated. So. Um, as I travel on this journey, my aim is to to build a you know uh, I guess a holy relationship with with my Lord and my Savior and with the people that He places me with and see about bringing about a better world to live in and particularly with those that I'm connected with and I I would appreciate maybe you just expounding a little bit on your vision and how how that impacts your community. First of all, thank you so much for having me on your show, Michael. I'm really happy to to speak with you. Um, so we started this community almost 13 years ago. We felt that, um, that we were living in a moment in which religion was increasingly defined by voices of religious extremism um, that were either violent or regressive. And uh, on one hand, and on the other hand, there was a huge population um, of, of Jews in America who had completely fled from religion because uh, because they felt that the the offering of the institutional religious world was not a, a powerful enough counter testimony to the voices of of hatred and vitriol and violence that were coming uh, from the religious uh, voices that were you know really on, on on the news and so many people had fled. I later learned over the course of the years that this wasn't a phenomenon that was unique to Judaism in America but really that many religious communities in this country were struggling with high rates of disaffection, that young people are fleeing, not only from synagogue, but also from church and from the mosque. And I started to ask really what's going on here? Why is it that so many people, and in particular young people, um, really aren't finding the, the spiritual nourishment, the sense of purpose, the sense of meaning that they're looking for in conventional religious spaces? Because this tradition that I find so powerful as a guiding force in my own life, um, and that and that has really lasted for thousands of years, because it offers this, you know, a sense a sense of mystery and a sense of purpose and and a way to hold both pain and beauty in the world, um, was something that many people couldn't even access because the only points of entry they thought were through these sort of traditional conventional spaces, and so what we decided to do um, in the spring of 2004 was to try to translate some of the most powerful ideas and rituals and traditions from, uh, from our Jewish tradition into a language that people who weren't interested in the container of institutional religious life or conventional religious space 
would really be able to access and resonate to. Um, and so that's why we called it a Kilak Dosha, which means a sacred community. We didn't even want to call it a synagogue because we felt that many people who we were trying to touch at that point had only had negative experiences uh, with, with synagogue. There's a reason they weren't a part of one, in other words. And we really wanted to give them an experience of community that would create the space for a movement of the heart and um, and would help make sense of what it means to be a Jew and a human being in a world on fire. And so that's yeah. what we set out to do in the spring of 2004. Now it's been almost 13 years since then. Well, that's 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 very interesting. Uh, uh, my experience didn't start until 2006, but uh, we left the institutional church for very much the same reasons. Uh, it, it seemed like in our world that the, the civil discourse amongst people was being eroded and, you know, there was those to the right of us that we called fanatics and those to the left that were heretics. And it, it, it just seems like our communities, our, our religious communities, and even our human community was losing uh, all contact and, uh, with one another. And so I understand what, uh, what it means to have community and a shared uh, experience of life that... Uh, brings people together who are of a faith and and for me it's not so much one ethnicity as uh, I try to be inclusive of all the you know all the different ethnic ethnic groups and um, we have had a great experience with that so um, we started a place we called the gathering place and it was not traditional church by any means uh, in fact some of the people in our community says well who, who gave you permission to to, to do that and to worship on, on a Thursday night rather than a Saturday or a Sunday. And uh, we said, well, we felt like that that was a, uh, a permission given to us and granted to us through our Lord. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of people out there who do feel disconnected, disadvantaged, and I know that you have a, um, a, a calling to, to try to reach out and uh, touch some of those people give us let me a little bit more about that part of your ministry and how that uh, affects those around you so there i mean there are really a couple of dimensions one is to reclaim the heart of our own tradition and help revitalize jewish prayer and ritual and give people back access to their own inheritance um in this in this time of mass disaffection and disaffiliation we have so many people who are now second or third generation removed from engaged religious life. And so many of them, I mean, I grew up in, uh, in, in this way. And at some point I realized that I wanted to know what my grandparents had rejected from, um, from traditional Judaism. And so what we want to do is we want to reclaim the heart of our own tradition to reclaim the prophetic voice that's really at the core um, of, of our tradition and to, to help give people a sense of the power and the majesty of, um, of the tradition now in ways that can touch them deeply. And at the same time, we really wanted to build out and be a part of building out a conversation about what it means to be alive in the world today. What do you do with this gift of human life for however long we are granted on this earth? And when you live in a time of, um, of great human tragedy, of vast human tragedy, and you have access in an unprecedented way to information about um, and knowledge uh, about all kinds of, uh, of horrors that are happening all around the world. So then how do you engage responsibly and how do you stay awake and not numb? What are, what are our core and central obligations? And I don't know what, 
know, how this works in the church, but I can tell you that in the Jewish space, very often the call to social justice or social activism has been seen as sort of a corollary to the religious life. And I really saw it and see it as an essential expression of the religious life, that you can't be a religious person and allow and allow acts of gross indecency to happen around you without speaking out about it. That you can't allow for acts of, of, of radical inequality to become normative around you and not speak out. And so in a way, what we were trying to do is help people reclaim their own tradition and then also engage the tradition seriously enough that it would help us understand really how to be human in the world today and how to step into the fray and engage when so much is at stake in the in the popular political culture right now um, in terms of the recognition of people's humanity, equality, and rights and dignity. Okay, well, I, I certainly concur with all of that. I think that <laughs> it's so important, in, in, particularly in the age that we live right now and what's going on in, in our country and, and around this world. Uh, let me change subjects just a little bit. Uh, tell me if I... My Hebrew is not great, so my pronunciations may not sound uh, just like you would hear them, but the Tanakh, is that is that uh, one of your holy books? That was pretty good, yes. Uh, it, and it contains basically the same uh, oh, books that our Old Testament in the Bible would have, right? Right, right, okay. exactly. So Tanakh is actually... It's an acronym that the 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 top is for Torah, the na the the nun is uh -huh. for nibbutim, which are the prophets, the prophetic writings, and the the ch at the end uh, is for ketuvim, which are all of the the psalms and proverbs and other writings. So yeah. um, it's the it's the combination of those three that are part of the Tanakh. Okay, uh, when my daughter was in college, uh, she took a course in um, comparative religions. Uh, we were living in New Orleans. And she went to a, uh, it was a Catholic university, Loyola. But uh, uh, she chose to, to study uh, Judaism. And so uh, one Saturday we went to temple. Uh, to, and uh, when I walked in, some of the men had on the, the skull cap. And so there were some there at the door. And I said, uh, I'm not Jewish, but should I wear this? And he says, well, we're very liberal here and so you you can uh, you can or you you or you don't have to but uh we we enjoyed the the service and the, the canter and it was a, um, a a a gathering where they were doing a bar mitzvah so that that was very interesting too to attend that celebration afterwards and uh take part in all that so uh to me it was very much um like my growing up years in the catholic church uh, as far as the, the ritual and, and the, the things that took place. But uh, very, very, very interesting. Uh, I have another question for you. I know in uh, the Christian tradition and in um, Islam, there's a, there is a focus on the afterlife that doesn't seem to be uh, that much of a, a emphasis in, the, in, in your faith. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. I think you're right that it's not a strong emphasis, but it is very much a part of the tradition. And um, and there are a lot of um, rabbinic texts from 2,000 years ago, from the time of the of the Talmud, where the rabbis begin to engage the question of what does the world to come look like, and uh, and what does it what is required of a person in order to enter the world to come. But you do see simultaneously a kind of ambivalence around 
um, talking too deeply and thinking too deeply about the world to come because they didn't um, want that to happen at the expense of the here and now. And so, um, so the idea is that engage uh, with as much integrity and decency as you can in this world, um, rather than spending your days dreaming of and imagining of the world to come. Um, so as a result, I think that there's been a, over the course of the past couple of centuries, a shying away from dealing with questions of the afterlife, um, of, of reincarnation, um, questions of the persistence of the soul. And there is actually now, uh, at least in the non-Orthodox community, there's been a real shying away. And in fact, in some in the Reform community, there were changes made to the liturgy where we would say in one of the principal um, blessings that comes in one of the central prayers of the service, it would say, um, we bless you, God, the one who gives life to the dead. And in the kind of um, hyper-intellectual um, and philosophical movement of the, um, of the 19th and 20th century, there was an attempt to strip that language and those ideas out of the, to, to move them away from the forefront of Jewish religious thought. I think because there was some sense that we needed to really ground ourselves in the world as it, in, in the world as it is and thinking about the world as it could be, not thinking about the next world. There is now today a resurgence. Um, there's a growing interest in addressing and trying to understand these, these very old Jewish ideas about the soul and about the afterlife. And in fact, in our community, we just launched a project at Yom Kippur this year, which we're just starting to get into now, um, which is based on a project called Death Over Dinner, um, a, a website that was created by a friend named Michael Hebb a couple of years ago um, to essentially make it easier for people to have conversations about death and dying. And within the 18 months after he launched it, a couple hundred thousand death dinners happened all around the world. Wow. <laughs> and when he and I met, we, re I, we were talking about how in the Jewish community there is a kind of resistance to engaging in real conversations about the survival of the soul, about the afterlife, and also about you know questions around death and end-of-life struggles, etc. And so we decided to create a project called Death Over Dinner Jewish Edition, where we would give people access to resources where they could sit together at dinner and, and read and learn and engage in conversation about these various perspectives on what happens after we die, um, what happens before we die, how do you deal with grief, how do we deal, you know, do we hear echoes of the life um, that one had after that person's gone. So um, this is something that I'm personally very interested in reviving a conversation around because I think it's, uh, I think it has been to a great loss for our community that we have really stepped away from engagement on the question of death. Now, I will say that in, in some communities, they haven't stepped away. I mean, you'll hear in the Orthodox world, you, you'll hear a lot of people talk about um, Olam Haba, the world to come. Um, it's just in the more progressive spaces that you don't hear about that so much anymore. And I think that is, um, I think that's something that we need to actively try to bring back into the conversation. Uh, I think that there's probably a, a real balance that can be struck there between the two, not focusing more on one than the other, but because we do live in this life and uh, we believe that God has given us a, a certain space of years here to be all that we can be uh, as he's created us. Uh, and yeah, I do look for the afterlife, but that's not uh, my focus so much either. Uh, you talked about... Uh, conservative and uh, traditional or uh, different sects of Judaism. And uh, wh what is the real difference between, say, Judaism and Zionism? 
Oh. Okay. And, and where so where are you in that picture? That's an interesting question. So I thought you were going to ask about the difference between the denominations, which I'll give just one moment. Sure. To. Well, that too. I will, yeah, that's part of it too. Go ahead. I mean, the differences between the denominations are really a question of um, rabbinic. All of the all of the Jewish um, all of the Jewish communities that have survived into you know modernity and, and contemporary times are all uh, rabbinic traditions. So they're non-fundamentalist. They are traditions that. That, that read our sacred text through the lens of the rabbis. And then the question is, through the lens of which rabbis? And do you believe that that interpretive process um, essentially you know, continues and is ongoing? Or do you believe that that interpretive process was definitive and at a certain point there's a, you know, a, a voice that was established as normative and that's the, those are the answers that still hold and guide our lives. And so really the difference between um, reform on one level and orthodox on the other is which rabbinic interpreters they're using as the key guides to answer the questions of how to live a life based on Torah values because we don't Torah has to be translated through interpretation in order for us to make sense of it so that's the way that the denominations really um, become distinct from one another so um, so there are certain denominations that really believe that this interpretive process is is tremendously ongoing and that it's actually an act of um, of love toward the tradition to continue to actively engage and work through traditional elements and to try to understand what meaning they might have for us today and there are others who are much more resistant to or reluctant to the ongoing uh, interpretive act and, and believe much more that we should we should rest on the the codes um, and the interpretations that come from the um, for, you know, both from the, the rabbis of the Talmud and then also from the medieval rabbis um, who wrote some fairly definitive codes of Jewish law. So, um, in terms of Zionism, well, can, before Zionism, you before you before you get into that, could, could, I, could I make a comparison there? See if I'm uh, understanding you. Uh, could we say that it would be like in in our country today the interpretation of our constitution? Uh, is is it literal or is it a is it a, a, a living document that continues to evolve and change? And so, I mean, is that yes. kind of what you're saying? I think it's a good analogy. It's just that in reality, there aren't any, there really aren't any Jews in the in the world today who believe that it is that the, if the Constitution is the Torah, um, that it is to be read literally. Everybody's reading it as in some way a living document. The question is, how alive is that document? All right. Okay. Okay. Process and who has a right to weigh in on that interpretive process? And um, what kind of authority do you have to lend your voice to that conversation? How much do you need to to know in order to have a right to weigh in? So I think it's more. Your I think that the analogy is fair. It's just that there used to be um, there used to be biblical literalists in the Jewish uh, faith. And that really doesn't exist uh, so much anymore. So everybody who's you know who's who has survived in the Jewish in the Jewish space now understands that when the Torah says an eye for an eye, it doesn't literally mean an eye for an eye. Right. There isn't a Jewish community alive today that believes that it should be read in a literal fashion. Everybody agrees that it's if you take out my eye, there are consequences. Those consequences are the monetary value of my eye. The question is just does that in, that that was established you know thousands of years ago as the way that that's a rabbinic interpretation of a biblical text, so it's not read literally. But then the question is, 
does that interpretive process that moved an eye for an eye from you take it out my eye, I will take out yours, does that process end 2,000 years ago or 600 years ago, or does that process continue even today? And that's why you will have people who, who read other elements of religious life very differently in terms of women's leadership, in terms of equality for various members of the community, etc. So um, I hope that that's a little bit more clear. Sure, yeah, yeah, that helps a lot. Uh, yeah, uh, address Zionism. So Zionism is the idea that the Jewish people, which has lived in exile for 2,000 years from, uh, from our homeland, have, both, have a need for uh, a, a national homeland, a place where not only can Jews take refuge from a world that has, over the course of thousands of years, uh, at various points, been I incredibly unfriendly um, and inhospitable to the Jewish people, in addition to chapters of, you know, of, of, of real golden age chapters, but, but over the course of time, uh, many times have Jews been exiled from and persecuted from and uh, victims of genocide in the outside world. And so the idea of Zionism is that there should be a place where Jews can have a home, where they can take refuge from, uh, from the, whatever threats are engaged in the outside world, but not only a refuge, also that there should be a place where, where Jewish and Hebrew culture and language and ideas can actually thrive and take the public stage, where ideas about Jewish ethics and Jewish values can actually be fully manifest, which when you're a minority community living under someone else's rule, you don't get to manifest uh, fully your own culture or your own values or ethics. And so the idea behind Zionism was that it would serve, that there would be a, a homeland for the Jews that would serve as both a refuge and a platform to articulate and express core, core Jewish ideas and values uh, for the first time in several thousand years. So that, that's sort of the first and, and basic articulation. Um, and I, I suspect you're going to want to follow up with a question, so I will <laughs> stop talking. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, I, I have lived uh, considerably longer than you have, and uh, I am familiar with uh, a lot of the uh, the famous Zionist through uh, my time anyway, um, um, Ben-Gurion and of course uh, Golda Meir and, and Rabin, and uh, fully support the idea of a Jewish homeland. And uh, according to my understandings and my reading of, of, of scriptures, I believe that uh, you're, you're still being uh, cheated in as far as what the original boundaries that were set forth by, by, by God. So uh, I want to be able, I, I'd like to be a person who is inclusive in uh, accepting people wherever they are, wh whatever their walk is, uh, be they Christian or Islamic or, or, uh, or Jews or uh, Buddhist, whatever they are. If I, you know, I can live with these, with people of different uh, beliefs, but how, how does Israel, uh, today deal with and, and how do you um, feel about the Palestinians and that conflict that is continuing between the two nations, two groups of people? Mm -hmm. Right, so I think that the great challenge um, that Israel faces today is that we have a set of, we as a Jewish people have a set of values and principles that grew for thousands of years um, in a, when we were in a position of powerlessness, 
when we could really ruminate on and expand upon um, what our values are when we could not fully implement those values with regards to another minority population um, that would be under our, under our control. And so now the great challenge that Israel faces today, I think, is what happens to those core Jewish values when you are in a position of power, not powerlessness? And how do you deal with sovereignty? And what does, Jew what does Judaism look like on the public stage when you're not you know, going out of your home to only search for the kosher ingredients in the marketplace and then going back inside and practicing your Judaism in a very private way for fear of you know, persecution, but instead, Judaism is the, you know, is the majority religion in a place. So what does that actually look like? And how do you translate the obsessive engagement in our traditional literature about our obligations to the stranger and to the other and to the oppressed among us when we actually now have the power to, to engage with, um, other people very seriously and to and to either support or stand in the way of the full, of the full uh, realization of their dignity. And this is, I think that this is the heart of a lot of the conflict that's going on right now in Israel. And much of the difference between, for, you know, for example, um, some people who would call themselves nationalist, uh, you know, national religious Zionists, and some people who call themselves progressive Zionists, who believe that there absolutely is a need for um, and a desire for there to be a Jewish state and a Jewish homeland, and also believe that it needs to be, it needs to live in accordance with these foundational Jewish values that have always guided our people. And others who, you know, who really believe that now that we are given the opportunity to, through, you know, the course of events of the 20th century, that now we are called to fulfill God's designs for our people and for this land at the expense of, you know, the people who, who live there. And I think that this is a real internal struggle that we see right now in the Zionist community, in the Jewish community, more broadly speaking, and it's playing out in very public. This is an internal family feud that's playing out in very public ways, <laughs> okay. campuses, you know, around the world. And the question really is, what are the values that drive us? I, I mean, I can tell you that one of the reasons that it's so important for me to fight for a pluralistic and democratic Israel is because I believe that the values that drive that the, the, the Jew, that that we have to what, once given the opportunity to build a Jewish state, that state needs to live in accordance with our deepest values and our deepest understandings about human dignity, about equality, and about justice. And there are many people who feel this way, both inside Israel and around the world, who are you know who who, who still call themselves Zionists and are are, are really deep in the trenches fighting for there to be a resolution to this conflict so that Palestinians can live in dignity and in peace and Jews can live in, in security and in dignity and peace. And I still believe that that dream is possible. Um, I do think the window is closing. Um, and, and, and I think that, um, that it's really essential that we work to make progress on the resolution to this conf conflict. Um, but I also, I, I, do, I do believe that there's a, there's a very strong sense in the Jewish community that um, that we have in the past been abandoned by the world and left to, uh, you know, really left to the to the most malicious and grotesque forces um, in the human community, while the world kind of looked on. And now that Jews are in a position of power, there's a kind. I do I do think that there's a a, a widespread distrust that all of the kind-hearted good people who seem to suddenly be invested. 
um, you know, really might not necessarily have the best interests of the Jewish people in mind. And so it's a very delicate situation. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of pain. My, um, my sense of what needs to happen right now um, in this conflict is that we have to make space for the recognition of multiple truths here, um, that, that there is a Jewish narrative and there is a Palestinian narrative, and I believe that it's possible to hold both of those narratives and find a way to honor the dignity of all the people who wanna, uh, want to and need to share this tiny stretch of land. And I think that what we run into is that most of the time in the conversation around Israel-Palestine and in the conversation around Zionism, we have parties who hold one truth and one narrative and completely discredit the other at the same time. And that happens both on the right and on the left. Uh, yes. <laughs> I agree. That's very, that's, I think that that's profoundly unhelpful for us, yeah. uh, for all of us. I mean, we're not going to find a resolution where one party just disappears. That's simply not going to happen, nor do I think, you know, nor do we want that to happen. So what that means is that we have to understand that there are there are multiple narratives um, and, and, and allow for the fact that the way that, that I see this um, is not the way that somebody else sees this. And that at the end of the day, what we have to do is keep people safe and give people their dignity. Um, I can tell you that I was, uh, over the summer I studied with, uh, I go to Jerusalem every summer and I was studying with, um, with one of the lead peace negotiators on Israel's negotiation team. And he said that what we have right now is a situation in which there are two opposing sides. Both sides see themselves as the victim and see the other as the villain. And when you have uh, two parties who both clearly see themselves as vi as victims and clearly see the other as villain, you're not. There's no basis for a shared narrative, and there's no basis for negotiation. And so, what we're going to have to do is stretch open our perceptions of the other in order to see that even though I'm very scared and I feel like a victim because of all of these acts of terrorism, because I feel like we kept, you know, this is what you'll hear from many people in the Jewish community. We've made multiple attempts to make peace. We've only been answered with buses being blown up, et cetera, et cetera. So even though I feel so um, embattled and I feel so vulnerable, I also have to recognize that Palestinians feel, um, feel that they've been victimized and feel incredibly vulnerable themselves. And while Palestinians really hold onto, uh, many of them hold onto this victim narrative as well, for them to understand that Jews also feel deeply vulnerable and feel, uh, you know, and, and feel worried for our children as well. And I don't think that this conversation can possibly change course until both, until both parties are able to recognize the real vulnerabilities that the others experience and feel. Ah, hallelujah. <laughs> I, I, I totally concur with what you're saying. You know, and I, and I listened to your podcast. I know you have another engagement, so I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick. But uh, I, I do enjoy your, your short uh, talks, and uh, 15, 20 minutes is a, is, is a good time because I, I don't lose concentration. So uh, <laughs> keep that up. But uh, I know that you're passionate also about all the different people groups within uh, the United States. And... Uh, uh, with what's going on in our country as far as uh, changes that are being made and learning to accept and live and walk with one another. I mean, I, I myself have been out of the institutional church now since 2006. And uh, at first I was uh, thinking, you know, they, they had it all wrong. They're bad people. They don't know what they're doing. They're worshiping God in the wrong way. But uh, have come to learn that, no, they still, they're, they're, they are people that I can identify with. 
And um, though we have some differences, we have more in common than we have uh, that, that, that are, you know, differences. So I, I need to be more accepting of them. And hopefully as time goes on, they can learn to accept the way that I choose to worship uh, my God also. Um, you as a, as a woman um, find yourself in much the same place as a lot of women in, in the Christian faith. Uh, being um, new as uh, coming into the position of a rabbi. And so uh, how long has it been since, uh, since women have been uh, uh, recognized in that, in that way? Well, it's still relatively new, um, especially in the scope of Jewish history. It's relatively new. So it was in the 1970s that the first woman was ordained in the reform movement in the 1980s in the conservative movement. And today, when, by the time I was ordained, I went, went to a conservative seminary. Um, in my class, we, were, we, were, we reached the number 120 in terms of women rabbis in the world. Wow. And, uh, and then um, today, now you see that some women are being ordained as Orthodox rabbis as well in very small numbers in very select places. It's not by any means normative yet. Um, but I, I mean, I, clear, I think that we're clearly on a trajectory toward greater equality in women's leadership in, in religious life and certainly in Jewish life, um, simply because there's an, it, there's a growing acceptance and acknowledgement that um, some of those um, some of those older understandings about gender differences um, actually precluded really strong leadership from uh, from taking hold in the community and that many of the women who sort of risen to the forefront um, you know in orthodoxy today, are women who bring incredible knowledge and very deep humility and really enhance the Jewish religious uh, experience profoundly. And people recognize that. And that's why I think things are shifting um, at, you know, very, the, rather quickly. Um, it's still not normative. Um, I still sometimes get called a woman rabbi instead of a rabbi. And, you know, it's um, some of my women colleagues will, will say that the only panels that they get asked to speak on are panels about women and religion not panels about religion. Um, I know that this is something that women uh, pastors experience too in, in, in some churches. Um, so it's not it's not normative. We have a lot of work to go. We still have a massive pay gap. We have a massive leadership gap in in terms of gender equality. Um, and you know, but but I think that we are making progress. And this is a very old tradition. So progress is slow. And in the course of things, we've moved fairly quickly on this one. Um, over the course of the past 30 or uh, 30 or so years here. Well, I, yes, listen, I, I appreciate your time so much, and I hope that I haven't asked you any questions that, you know, that put you on the spot, but uh, I just wanted our hearers to know uh, something about the Jewish religion, your faith, and your practices. And so I'm going to give you just a, 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 how much time you, ever, you have or you want to, to sum things up and just close this out. Well, I first, let me just thank you, Michael. I'm so intrigued by your work, and I really appreciate um, I, I really appreciate your approach to this. And I can tell you, I'm, I'm reading right now a book by Arlie Hochschild, which is, I think, incredibly important, especially after the election called Strangers in Their Own Land. Um, and she talks about the empathy wall that's been built up in our country, in particular, where people don't even see each other anymore, let alone have any deep understanding of one another. And so I really believe that what will save us now is curiosity, um, an open heart, an open mind, uh, and, uh, you know, and an ability to see and hear one another. So I appreciate your 
um, your inquiry and your questions. And I also really hope that one day you'll come and celebrate Shabbat with us at Ikar, um, if you're ever in Los Angeles, and we'd, we'd love to have you uh, come visit. Well, thank you. Thank you for that invitation. Yes, uh, we do have uh, relatives out there. My wife does, and we are planning a trip to California. So... Um, uh, you may see me there, and I will certainly let you know if, if we're coming. <laughs> Again, uh, blessings to you, and uh, we're not going to do an eye for an eye, but we're just going to, <laughs> going to uh, love one another and uh, love God and love our neighbor as, as he's called us to do. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, Michael. Blessings to you. All right. Bye-bye. Well, I hope all of you out here have enjoyed this podcast with Rabbi Sharon Browse. And if you want to know more about uh, her and her in involvement in the Jewish faith, you can uh, subscribe to the ECAR community newsletter. You can sign up for her um, podcast. You, those can be found on iTunes. Just go to IKAR. That's the, the name of the podcast. Or you can find her online, ikar la Dot org. So I want to thank you again for listening to today's podcast and blessings to you all out there. This is Michael Singh. See you in the funny papers.